Welcome to Head in the Cloud. I'm your host, John Svazek. This is episode 5, 2017. So I want to welcome everyone back. I took a week off uh, from doing the podcast because it was Mother's Day and I wanted to give my wife a nice, fun-filled weekend um, for all the work that she's done with our kids. And as such, I said, eh, we're just gonna we're gonna skip the podcast for a week and hopefully people uh, people understand. Uh, so anyway, here we are. Uh, so welcome back. So today we're gonna talk. Uh, we're gonna shift gears a little bit. We're not gonna be going into uh, security and hardening and all that uh, lovely stuff like we've been doing for the last couple of podcasts. Today we're gonna kind of switch uh, and talk about provisioning and DevOps at a very high level. Uh, so for those who are not familiar with the term, DevOps uh, stands for Developer Operations. This is kind of an, an emerging field. It's been around for a couple of years now, but uh, in the grand scheme of things, it's rather rather new. So basically the idea is with DevOps, you treat your infrastructure as code. <clears throat> so you treat your infrastructure as code and the idea is very much with cloud operations, you're given APIs that you can use to create new machines, uh, new VMs, and you're going to have to set those up in some way, shape, or form. Now, on the previous podcasts where we discussed the CIS benchmark, those are kind of the at the cloud provider level. Now we're talking about the actual instances and the DevOps teams, this is where things really get interesting. Um, you can almost think of DevOps as being the modern cloud-based IT department, but oftentimes the people that are doing DevOps are actually developers. So your developers who are building your SaaS or PaaS or whatever else, they are actually using these infrastructure as a service providers to build up the offering that you're going to be selling as, as your organization. Uh, and that can go in terms of both code and infrastructure. Um, so that whole conglomeration together is what we call DevOps. Um, some people might have different definitions of it, but that's the way I've always understood and that's the way I'm going to describe it. So the interesting thing with DevOps is because you have teams that are maybe traditionally not the the standard IT group these are developers who kind of they have a very strong understanding of technology obviously but maybe they don't understand the the nuances of things uh, like a traditional IT person would know uh, especially when it comes around uh, to security then there's reason to to want to make sure that everyone has uh, as the best footing for lack of a better term and so in this podcast today we're just going to take a quick look at at provisioning and how this can uh, help the DevOps team uh, kind of get started get yourself a good solid foundation and go from there so uh, let's just dive right into it so what exactly is provisioning when I say provisioning what what am I talking about well, provisioning is the idea of creating kind of like a gold image, for lack of a better term. Well, provisioning means a lot of things. Let me take a few steps back. Provisioning usually means the creation of something, uh, setting something up, um, you know, importing or creating or instantiating or whatever else. For provisioning, what I'm going to be referring to is the creation and configuration of virtual machine images in a cloud environment. And what does that mean? How are we going to do that provisioning uh, in a repeatable form? And more importantly, what do we want to do and how are we going to do it? Um, so when I talk about provisioning, I like to talk about first and foremost starting from a good place. Now, if you're using Azure, if you're using AWS, there's going to be uh, some predefined images that are available to you for setting up your VMs. 
Now these VMs, these predefined images, they're stock, they are base. They really don't have, unless you're getting a specialized one, generally don't have any pre-hardening, pre-configuration, pre-anything uh, for you. So I like to take these base images, give them some tender loving care, and make sure that they themselves are hardened. And how do I go about doing that? Well, there's lots of different options for hardening these base images. Um, you can do a quick search using Google or your favorite search engine, Bing, if you're a masochist for whatever reason. Um, and take a look at you know hardening checklists. The CIS, the Center for Internet Security, uh, these are the guys that did the AWS benchmarks that we talked about before. They also have operating system benchmarks as well. So they're definitely worth looking into to see how you can um, you can harden these operating systems. And it's not just the standard Linux and Windows operating systems. They actually have a, believe it or not, a checklist, a benchmark, sorry, for Novell Netware. Now that's a blast from the past. I had no idea that anyone was still using Novell. Um, but apparently, if you are, there is an actually up-to-date checklist for that. There's checklists for FreeBSD. There's checklists, checklists. Huh. Learn to talk, John. Uh, there are checklists for Mac as well. And in addition, if you have servers and services that are running on these servers, um, like a web server like Apache, uh, they actually have uh, checklists for those as well. So it's definitely worth uh, taking a look at uh, what they have to offer if you don't know where to start. Maybe your company already has a predefined checklist that you uh, are going to be working against. If you don't, take a look at these benchmarks from CIS, use them uh, for your own purposes. It's definitely worth, worth uh, looking into. So, now, this is all well and good, so great. You have a benchmark, you have a checklist, you have a list of items that you want to do. Um, what are you gonna do with these things? Are you going to follow these every single time you set up a new machine? Well, the short answer is yes, you should. Now, the long answer is, do you want to do it manually every time? Probably not. You know, If the case is that you're gonna be doing this each time, yeah, you should be doing it each time, but that doesn't mean you need to do it from scratch every time. So this is where we get to the idea of provisioning and creating this golden image for your um, VM instances. So what we're gonna be looking into is how are we going to create these golden images and what are the steps and what's the advantage of doing them? Well, the advantage of, of creating a golden image is you can reuse it. Right? Every good cloud provider allows you to create a image of a running VM. And oftentimes, the very first thing that, that a uh, DevOps person should do is create a golden image that they can use and reuse and build on for any future machines that they need to put into the environment. So the way that I would personally go about doing this is I would spin up a stock image. I would make sure that that's, that VM is completely locked down. And what I mean by that is there is no external access. The firewalls, the ingress rules are blocking everything except for either an RDP connection or an SSH connection from my local IP and everything else is denied. And this way I can have exclusive access to that machine to follow the benchmark that I'm wanting to follow or the checklist that I'm wanting to go through just to make sure that I've got it completely locked down. Once I have that machine locked down, I will cut an image of it. Once I have that image cut, then I will start looking at the um, security posturing of it. Maybe I'll, I'll wait to cut the image. Maybe what I'll want to do is spin up Nessus, OpenVos, some sort of vulnerability scanner, uh, Nexpose, 
uh, is another one and just run it against the base image. Now double check with your cloud provider ahead of time just to make sure you're not going to run afoul uh, or accidentally trip any of their uh, monitoring for security just to make sure that again you don't want to break anybody's terms of service so just just send a quick note to support and say hey are you guys okay if I do this or do I have to fill out a penetration test report before doing it? I don't know, uh, different vendors are, are more or less sensitive to things and it's better just to make sure that uh, you've got the all clear before you, you go too far. But the idea is this base image, the only thing that you want from this golden image is having a pre-hardened environment. And this is at the OS level, this is not at the application level, this is not at the database level, this is not at the web tier level, this is just a stock machine that I want to use to build on. Do I have that hardened in some way, shape, or form? Once you have that, then you can start looking at building on um, on top of that and let's say in an n-tier architecture you're going to have usually what you're going to have a, a common three-tier architecture we'll go three-tier because that's that's probably the most common you have your web tier you have your application tier and then you have your database tier and each of these tiers has to be built on a common operating system of some sort or at least have some sort of base image that yeah, that you're going to add additional functionality to and that's where these golden images uh, can can give you that initial starting block so create these images and create the uh, update them have them hardened and then use them as a stepping stone you can have as many golden images as you want uh, you can have a golden image that is just your base operating system then you have uh, a second image that's built on top of that maybe adds your web tier so be that IIS, be that Apache, be that Nginx, be that whatever, um, and then you harden that image. And then chances are you're going to have more than one of them because you're going to have some redundancy. So fine, create another golden image off of that one. And then likewise, your application tier, you know, what sort of middleware server, like there's, there I'm dating myself, middleware, nobody uses that term anymore. Um, but if you're going to have an application server, be it Tomcat, JBoss, um, you know, whatever you're going to have at that level, uh, again, you want to have that hardened, but you want to base that off the original golden image, add your application logic tier, um, application tier logic, sorry, harden that, harden the server, set the configs, create an image of that. And then likewise for the database, if you're not going to use a platform as a service for your database and you're just going to roll your own, again, make sure that that is hardened in and of itself. So there's a lot of configuration steps that we're talking about here. And this is kind of where we, we go into the next sort of tool to help with the provisioning of these services, this, this initial creation, this initial setup you can do everything by hand very much like the idea of hardening your operating systems you can do everything by hand each and every time and then create your images and you go from there but what happens when a new version of the operating system comes out let's say you're using linux and let's say you're using ubuntu and let's say that you're decided that as a company you will only be running long-term support versions so you're gonna start and we're gonna be let's see what's the, what's the most recent LTS version 1604 right so 1604 is the latest LTS version well, what happens when 1804 comes out well, maybe you're gonna say well you know what it's only two years we're good we're gonna keep it as is Okay, so then what? You're going to wait another two years. And next thing you know, 2004 comes out. What are you going to do? Well, we want to upgrade. Okay, how, how do you want to upgrade? Do you want to upgrade in place? Do you want to uh, maybe create new images and then just phase them in? Create new VM instances, I should say, and then phase them in? Oh, that's great. 
How are you going to configure those? Well, I've got everything written down. Well, you know, is it the same? Did you do any additional modifications over those four years? Probably you have. And in that case, you want to have uh, some sort of mechanism by which you can make it easier to repeat the steps that you've done. Maybe you had a mistake when you were building the base image and you didn't catch it until six months later. And now you've got to figure out, but you've got 100 VMs. How are you going to go out and make all those changes? Are you going to fix it on one golden image and then recreate 100 VMs? You know, that's time consuming and expensive. So maybe you want to, uh, you know, use something a bit better. Now, this is where the, the toolbox of DevOps really opens up. And if you do any sort of search for DevOps, you're going to run across uh, applications like Chef, Puppet, Ansible, uh, SaltStack. There's a couple of different tools. Um, and maybe you'll run into other things like uh, CloudFormation or Terraform or uh, I can't remember, there's a couple of other commercial tools that are very similar. All of these tools that I just mentioned, they kind of fall into two categories. Uh, well, two, I like to consider them two different categories. Uh, the micro provisioning systems and the macro provisioning systems. And I'll go into them, what I mean by each of those in a minute. But the set up at the individual uh, system level, the even even down to the individual service level, that's something that tools like Chef, Puppet, Ansible, SaltStack, that's where they really shine. These are tools that I like to consider the micro-provisioners. They deal at the individual machine level. Tools like Terraform and CloudFormation, these are tools that work at the macro level. This is sort of your higher uh, level architecture. What is your network layout? What is the, um, the that whole sort of look uh, of, your, of your architecture? And how are you going to provision that from network, uh, network blocks to individual subnets to uh, security groups, right? That's where those tools kind of really, really shine. So we're going to take a quick look at both of them, but we're going to take a look at the, the, uh, the micro provisioners first, because that's really something that you're probably going to spend most of your time with. So now, as far as going with a micro provisioner, I'm a big fan of Chef. Uh, I've looked at Puppet and uh, tried it initially. It wasn't as big of a fan. For some reason, Chef really resonated with me. Uh, it is, I can't say it's the more popular of the two. There are others. There's SaltStack. There's Ansible as well. Um, it really boils down to what works for you and your environment. Um, I would recommend either Puppet or Chef if you have uh, Windows systems. And the reason I say that is Ansible, while being nice, um, requires you to have a Linux host as being the initiator of uh, the provisioning. So either one of your developers has a Linux laptop that they're going to be using to fire this up, um, or whoever is in charge of your DevOps. Um, but to be honest with you, Ansible actually just added, well, they had better support for Windows in 1.7, uh, with release 1.7. Um, so it's not, it wasn't baked in from the beginning. It was built as a Linux tool and Windows was considered an afterthought. Now, Puppet and Chef kind of had this native, uh, well, it was more or less OS agnostic for, since the beginning. Right. Puppet came first. Chef was born out of a fork of Puppet, if memory serves. Um, history on that might be a little bit off, but you know the idea was that Chef would be a better Puppet, um, and you know Puppet's definitely the oldest and it's the most uh, stable. 
salt stack is another one i don't have as much visibility into salt stack so i really can't I can't reserve judgment on that one i can't really comment on it i mean so but i have the most experience with chef i love it um, take a look take a look at at the different ones and see what fits with you right but the idea it fits with you and your environment but the idea behind these tools is that you get complete control over pretty much everything anything that you would manually do on the operating system you should be able to do with one of these uh, one of these tools so in the case of chef um, I think one of the reasons I'm such a big fan of chef is they kind of have taken the name and really just rolled with it so what do I mean by that I mean everything has it like it, it they hmm. they picked this name chef and they decided that okay well what does a chef use well a chef uses a chef knife knife is the command line tool that you use when interfacing with a chef server so well what else does a chef use well a chef uses uh recipes right and recipes are what uh, in the chef world are the kind of you can think of them almost like manifests where these are the things that you want to do these are the instructions these are the steps you want to perform and maybe you perform them for a very specific purpose um, it could be anything from dropping a configuration file into a directory to creating directories or files to adding users or starting services or restarting services because of a change that was made and uh, or maybe you know dropping a file that's based on a template that is configured based on some external environment settings that you've managed to uh, to get or have pre-configured and of course what do you do with with recipes well you put them together into a cookbook and a cookbook is a collection of recipes that are then used by knife well you use knife to drop them into your central chef server and uh, from there the individual chef nodes which are the vms would pick them up and go from there now if you want to get other people's cookbooks no problem go to the chef supermarket and if the supermarket is essentially a public repository where you can get other people's cookbooks and then naturally you want to make sure that your um, cookbooks themselves and your recipes are well formed based on the recommendations and the and kind of the rules of uh, the chef ecosystem um, and you can use a tool called food critic to do so and since everyone loves unit testing you can use something like test kitchen to do your uh, cookbook testing so as you can see they've kind of taken this pun this idea of chef and really just run with it and and for some reason that that makes me giggle every time I think about it and it's one of the one of the draws that I have for chef and why I, I consider it one of the one of the better tools or not if not the uh, tool to use for this micro level provisioning so we could talk about chef probably for hours in and of itself just because it is a, a ridiculously flexible tool and it's really really quite good um, we're not going to do that just because it is uh, its own thing but i definitely would recommend if you're going to be doing any sort of cloud-based work regardless of who your provider is take a look at chef they have support for pretty much every operating system that you would be using in a cloud environment anyway um, and the the entire uh, ecosystem around chef is is very well documented it's it's pretty good you know I, I'm a big fan uh, for sure now puppet puppet has just very similar things instead of uh, the chef uh, instead of a supermarket for shared um, manifests because they're manifests and puppet not uh, 
not cookbooks, they have the Puppet Forge, which is very similar. Ansible has the Ansible Galaxy. I think SaltStack has something similar, but again, I, I'm not familiar enough, so I'm not gonna, I'm not even gonna try uh, to to get into that one. But when we talk about these tools, again, remember we're talking about the micro configuration um, of these tools, and this could be anything from you know helping you harden your operating system to uh, diving into uh, configuring your own application, dropping configuration files down and making updates and whatever else. So, and all of these steps are, are saved and defined in these uh, configuration files, be they recipes or manifests or whatever else. Now, Obviously, the question becomes, what if I have some sensitive information? Maybe I've got a configuration file for my application that I want to put down, but it has a password in it. I don't want to store my password in plain text up into, say, Git uh, for any other developer to stumble across and be like, oh, hey, great, look, I just found a password, or even worse, an unauthorized third party, aka a hacker, that comes in, um, manages to find your password because well, somebody published this configuration file to a public repo and uh, forgot to remove it, you know, and, and we have that nightmare uh, scenario. Now the good news is with these with these tools, you can use uh, encryption. So in Chef, uh, they have this notion of data bags, and data bags are just generic collections of information that you can call on. And the nice thing about data bags is there's an encrypted data bag. So you can actually encrypt the data in that data bag so that it's not in plain text. It's actually in a, in a secured format. Now, the data bags use uh, symmetric key uh, encryption meaning that the server that's going to or the instance that's going to use that encrypted data bag needs a way to decrypt it so the key actually has to exist on that system first um, this is where the idea of a golden image really uh, takes hold because you can when you create the golden image you can put that key onto the golden image ahead of time so that when you're provisioning the system when you're using chef to do the actual provisioning uh, that key is already available so you don't have to worry about uh, how am i going to get the key over to the machine before chef runs and man that's going to be another manual step and why am i using this tool it's not really saving me anything uh, sure it's a little bit more secure sure it saves me a couple of steps but eh so this is where the idea of the golden images especially when you're working with something like a provisioning tool like chef or puppet really comes into comes into play right that'll definitely help not to mention you could use chef and puppet to do the provisioning of the of the hardening of that original operating system and in fact that's what i recommend that you do create your base image make sure it's locked down then bootstrap it with uh, chef or puppet and then after it's bootstrapped uh, you can create a base hardening cookbook i'm going to use chef terminology because that's what i'm most familiar with but you can use a base hardening cookbook to do all your os level hardening and the best part is you can test all of this before you create your first image. Use something like, like Test Kitchen. Now, Test Kitchen isn't just for Chef. I don't want to give that impression. Uh, Test Kitchen actually does support a number of different provisioners. Take a look at it, and we'll, uh, I'll provide a link in the show notes for, for the, the uh, Test Kitchen, as well as Chef and Puppet uh, and a few others. And you can take a look yourself. But with with chef you can have these encrypted cookbooks you can or sorry encrypted data bags you can have your base image um, doing the the provisioning using chef you can have the the symmetric key on the base image you can have chef pre-installed 
so that when you're using auto scaling groups, it can actually, it's already installed. So it already knows um, how to automatically um, connect to your chef server and retrieve whatever cookbooks it needs and so on and so forth. There's actually a really nice blog article um, and I'll, again, I'll provide a link to, which will help you define or set up chef for auto provisioning in AWS. Um, you can take a look at that and you should be able to modify it for Azure and even uh, other cloud providers. Um, so, but I, I guess the main point of this rambling of mine is Chef in and of itself is a great tool. These micro provisioners themselves are great tools and should be used as much as possible. Um, using a golden image to start with, one that's been pre-hardened, basically eliminates that window of opportunity between bringing the VM up to getting it to a hardened state uh, before you start getting into things like uh, installing your application or your other um, uh, systems, be it a web server, a database server, an application server, whatever. Um, so having that sort of pre-hardening does two things. It gives you that extra bit of security between the initial setup um, or the initial boot up of the machine to when you can actually start using it um, or when it's secured, I should say, as well as the amount of time, because even in an automated system, it's still going to take time to do these installations, these configurations. There might be a reboot required in there, depending on what you're installing or what you're setting up. Right. So by having all of these things sort of pre-baked in a golden image, you save yourself that additional amount of time. And that's that's kind of that's a serious advantage for sure. And like I said before, you do want to do testing of these uh, these images at almost every step of the way when you think you're done then just run it through a vulnerability scanner. Make sure you haven't missed anything. If you have missed something, update your, your provisioning scripts, update your, your manifests, your cookbooks, your recipes, whatever it is that, you, that you're using, just update them. That way you always have a mo the most up-to-date, the most correct uh, system and configuration scripts uh, that you can and then when you do want to move on to a newer operating system you have everything you need you have a customer that wants to see that you actually have a process by which you're hardening your machines you have a checklist you don't have to scramble and say hey Bob how did you uh, make sure that our systems are locked down you also move away from the potential to uh, forget certain steps maybe there's some manual steps that were done and you can't remember what they are. So the next time you bring up another machine, maybe you forget the seventh uh, step out of you know 25. Uh, and then all of a sudden you have inconsistencies and you have one server where everything works and another one where, where it works 90% of the time, but you don't know why that last 10% just randomly pops up at the mis most inopportune times. So, Using something like like these provisioning tools, these micro provisioners, is really really quite helpful and will definitely save you in the long run. But let's talk about the macro provisioners. I'm just going to touch about this, uh, touch on this one briefly because we're running a little long, but that's okay. The macro provisioners. There's two that I want to touch base on. Um, one is CloudFormation. And CloudFormation is Amazon's tool. Uh, it's an Amazon-specific tool for their environment. It's JSON-based. It is basically a tool that Amazon offers you to treat infrastructure as code. Now, we're talking infrastructure, not individual servers. So this is not the this is not at the individual server level per se. It's not the configuration of the operating system. It's not the configuration of your application. Um, this is actually how many VMs do you want? How many 
databases do you want? How many subnets do you want when you're creating a VPC? What's its network block going to be? Uh, what about security groups and all that? This is kind of almost going up, well, it is going up one level and kind of delving into the, the CIS uh, AWS benchmark layer to a degree. Um, and I'm not a big fan of CloudFormation, mainly for two reasons. One, it's Amazon specific. Uh, you can only use CloudFormation within Amazon. And two, it just doesn't work very well. I hate to say it. I love a lot of things that Amazon does. Um, CloudFormation is kind of that 80% tool. It's 80% of the way there, but it's not quite. Um, I find it very verbose. Uh, I find it lacking, actually, in quite a bit. Um, the CloudFormation tool itself tends to lag behind functionality um, that Amazon offers. Now, Amazon is ridiculously good at coming up with new technologies and bringing them out, but when it comes to CloudFormation, being able to use those, it's a little slow behind it. Now, if you're not using the latest and greatest and everything is there that you need to be there and you only ever plan on using Amazon and everything that Amazon touches is gold, go ahead, use CloudFormation by all means. Uh, I've tried it. I got frustrated with it pretty early on. Um, just not a fan. Just I tried as best I could, uh, but I'm not a fan. And instead, I've moved on to this other tool called Terraform. Now, Terraform is independent of Amazon. It's actually made by the same guys who make uh, Vagrant. So if you're familiar with Vagrant for, say, developer uh, VM setup and such, uh, it's the same group, HashiCorp or something. I can't remember exactly. Uh, I love Terraform. The, the biggest thing, I think, that sells me on Terraform, oh, there's two things. First, the syntax. The syntax is uh, not JSON, it's uh, HSON or something, I can't remember. It's like a JSON derivative, but it gives you comments and it's a bit easier to, it's less verbose, uh, easier to control, easier to create templates in general, just the layout of it is a lot better. But the other thing that I love about Terraform is the plan functionality. There's a, a command called plan. So you can do Terraform plan and it will tell you everything it's going to do before it actually does it. So you can see what are the new instances I'm going to be bringing up? What new, am I bringing up a couple of new uh, security groups? Am I creating a new subnet? Am I moving things around? Um, what's going on? Not to mention Terraform's ridiculously fast at getting up to speed and adding new functionality um, with Amazon, for example. Um, in addition, Terraform's uh, cloud provider agnostic. They actually support a ridiculously long list of cloud providers. Definitely take a look at Terraform to see. Uh, so if you're using Azure, for example, you can use Terraform. There's no problem there can't use CloudFormation. CloudFormation, again, is, is restricted just to Amazon customers. But Terraform is available for Azure. If you want to use um, DigitalOcean, Terraform supports DigitalOcean. You know, there's a ton of stuff. Linode, Linode is supported as well. You know, there's a long list of uh, providers that Terraform supports. But I mean, the, the functionality, um, the, the lack of verbosity, um, making it just the feel of Terraform for me is a lot better than, than say, CloudFormation. CloudFormation in and of itself is a great tool. I don't want to knock it too much. For me, it's not the greatest tool in the world. Uh, I think Terraform does a better job. The fact that Terraform uses publicly available APIs and the community is quick to start using them for the various cloud providers means that oftentimes Terraform can support new functionality that Amazon releases before Amazon can do it within CloudFormation. 
you know, that to me is just ridiculous, but it's ridiculously awesome. So Terraform is an incredibly powerful tool. And I would say if you're, once you have an environment set up, once you have, you know, your architecture set up such that you know what you want to do, and I would say that it would probably be a better idea to start with something like a chef or a puppet to get the micro provisioning done first. Once you have that done, take a look at Terraform next. You know, consider that the next step. Some people would say, no, no, you should use something like these, these macro provisioners first. Uh, I would say, no, I think it's a, a little suffering is good for the soul, so to speak. Not to mention that oftentimes if you're an early stage startup and you're still trying to figure out what you want to do, um, it doesn't take you that long to set up new environments by hand, at least at that macro level. The micro level, that's where you're usually spending most of your time and most of that configuration work. So something like a chef or a puppet is definitely what you want to do. But the macro level, that's where you want to focus on uh, tools like like a Terraform, like a, like a CloudFormation, or any other of the commercial tools that are out there. That's the other thing. Terraform and CloudFormation are both free of charge. You can use either of them within a, uh, an Amazon environment. Terraform, obviously, outside of an Amazon environment, but there's no cost associated with it. There are commercial options that you can use if you wanted to get into, if you had for some reason some, some uh, secure passwords that you wanted to, to store. Terraform does have Atlas, which is their uh, commercial offering, which will give you the ability to encrypt sensitive data. Uh, amongst other things. Take a look at Terraform. Uh, you can read up all the details of it. But I would say take a look at Terraform. Again, I would say look at Terraform after you've figured out your micro-provisioning stages. And the reason I say that is because you're going to want to look at Terraform if you are going to, well, not if, when you are looking at disaster recovery. Okay. That's going to be probably the number one selling point for Terraform. Let me give you an example. When I first started doing any sort of uh, cloud work, you know, we started the same way that probably most companies start. We just brought up systems and configured them and went from there. And we only had a handful of systems and it was great and it worked. And then all of a sudden, no, now we need redundancy. Now we need to scale out. And we're repeating ourselves over and over and over again. We created scripts to help us, uh, but it was quickly becoming unmanageable. Then enter chef. Well, they hey, this is great. Right, now let's make sure we have disaster recovery. No problem. We had a documented process. Uh, we had everything lined up, uh, everything set. This is, these are the steps that you need to do. These are the scripts you need to run. This is how everything is going to be put together. And it was quickly this 75-page document complete with screenshots on these are the steps you need to do every step of the way. And that was with using something like Chef because we are talking about setting up a disaster recovery site in another data center. And it was quickly, it took us quite literally hours to finish. Now, we spent some time, we fixed our golden images, we made sure that it, we had those images in the other uh, environments, uh, in the other data centers, and we brought, there was a bunch of stuff that we did that were just stupid, to be honest with you. Um, and I can say that because this was this was my doing, and I was. I didn't know what I didn't know. And as I learned some more of the intricacies and some of the better things uh, for, for doing the work, I realized, oh, hey, okay, great. We can further script these things. We can bring these things down even more. We can make better use of the command line tools for bringing up instances as opposed to running through a, a UI every time we wanted to bring up a new, a new server. And that brought things down to just under an hour uh, to bring up a fair number of servers. Um, 
which was great, but I thought we could do better. And we kept going and we kept looking into other tools. And then finally, we ended up on the solution where we have Chef for the micro provisioning and we have Terraform for the macro provisioning. I can bring up a disaster recovery site, not just myself, I can have, um, well, actually it isn't myself anymore, but we have other team members who have authorization. We can bring up a disaster recovery site in approximately seven minutes. That's the amount of time a developer or a DevOps person, DevOps person, sorry, uh, takes to bring up a disaster recovery site from scratch. That includes database recovery, that includes an N-tier architecture, that includes the firewalls, the uh, subnets, the uh, routes, so all the routing tables, all the VM instances, everything, load balancers, DNS updates, the whole kit and caboodle. We're up and running in seven minutes. It's ridiculous the amount of time that this combination of Chef and Cloud or Terraform has has made our jobs. I mean, it's it's great. Now, obviously, there's additional checks that go in um, to that. We still have to deploy the actual application itself. We have to ensure that we have uh, smoke testing done, and you know our own spot checking over and above the time of um, bringing up the the, uh, the overall infrastructure but to go from zero to um, basically 90 percent in approximately seven minutes is really good and it's really satisfying and that's kind of the power that you have with uh, with these tools now it took us a while to get to that point um, it took a lot of reading a lot of dedication but to be fair, there's a lot of things we didn't know. We didn't know what we didn't know. Um, I didn't know what I didn't know at the time. But by having this repeatable process, by having this automated process, you get a couple of advantages. You get yourself a very good secured environment. You have uh, a very fast um, time to recovery, right? So you're uh, TRO, uh, your time recovery objective, that is much smaller than it, than it used to be. You know, we always pad the, the TRO just to make sure that we have the, um, necessary time in case something bad does happen. So we consider our TRO to be sort of the upper limit and it should be considered the upper limit. We'll always strive to do better than that, but at the same time, nothing's perfect. There's there's always a chance that something will fail at some point. So using uh, and increasing that time is, is always a good idea. But again, you know, you have these pre-hardened, pre-checked, almost like. Uh, uh, frozen meal style environments that you can spin up and you can start using whenever you need them, um, be it to increase ex the existing infrastructure or be it to um, create a disaster recovery, even a test environment. If you needed to replicate your environment, maybe not the data, but at least all the infrastructure just to do performance testing or load testing or whatever else, Having something that you can bring up relatively quickly is going to make sure that your teams can work on stuff right away. Not to mention, by having these pre-hardened and pre-configured systems, you're not going to have to worry about someone getting in through the back door because you forgot to do uh, an extra couple of uh, configurations on your test environments. And, you know, obviously your test environment should be separate from your production and uh, QA uh, environments and, and staging environments, right? All those should be separated, but, you know, you know, in a perfect world, we would have absolutely no security 
uh, incidents and, and we'd all be out of jobs. But the reality is there's always going to be some situation where somebody is is just oh it's just faster if we put it in this in this existing environment here you know if you can have the tools uh, to help you keep things separate like a terraform like a uh, cloud formation at that macro level then you remove that excuse of it's just easier if we do it this way if you remove that excuse you remove that threat you remove that threat you're just doing your job as a security professional that much more. Maybe you're not the one responsible for it. Maybe you have a dedicated DevOps team. That's great. Work with them. Get them looking at some of these tools. Get them to think about what can they do to make um, make their job that much better. And and you know, try it. See what's uh, see what we can see what you can come up with. You know, it's definitely worth uh, worth exploring. Anyway, with that, um, by all means, if there's anything I might have missed that you guys feel, you know, we should we should talk about, let me know. Just send me a note. You can reach out to me on Twitter. Um, so you can reach me, uh, John, at uh, on Twitter. I'm at John's Not Here. Uh, we have a website which is myheadinthe.cloud. Um, on Facebook, we're on Facebook. Just search for "My Head in the Cloud." I'm on Peerlist as well. You know, with that, you know, I hope you uh, hope you learned something today. I hope I shared some some rather interesting interesting information. Uh, definitely take a look at some of these tools, though. They will they will help shape your organization both from a uh, DevOps and from a security perspective, by having this these uh, automation tools, it makes auditing that much easier. It makes uh, documentation that much easier. It's definitely something worth looking at. So until next time, stay safe and have a great week. Mm -hmm.